Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Torah Studies. Now, what is Torah Studies, you ask? Like the name suggests, suggests it's where we study Torah. I know, I, I'm catching you for a loop. All right, so this is Torah Studies. We are going to explore this week's Torah portion, which is Vayechi. So we have the handouts. Should probably give you more than one at a time. I think, uh, I think that would be much more efficient. Um, do we have copies for everybody here? All right, online crew, I am... Hey, Ariella, good to see you. I am going to put up the text. Yes, put up the text for all those that need it online. Vayechi is the final portion in the book of Genesis, otherwise known as the book of Bereshis, which means that this week is called Shabbos. Who knows the word? Shabbos? It starts with a cha. Chazak. Shh, look at this guy. Look at this guy. Comes right back in. Boom, like a boss. Just saying. Mid-season form. Yeah, mid-season form, yeah. You're like, who was it? Which pitcher used to like take off the first half of the season and just roll in? Was it Clemens? I'm not getting, getting controversial here about, about you know, Hall of Fame. That's, I'm not weighing in on that. Anyway, so this week is Shabbos Chazak. And it's called Chazak because it's the end of a book. And when we end a book, it's a, it's a momentous occasion and we gain strength from culminating, from completing a book. And we also give ourselves blessing of strength to carry it into the study. Because, as they used to say in camp on the loudspeakers at the end of learning classes, learning never ends, learning never ends. That was the announcement to let us know that learning classes just ended. It would be like, learning never ends, learning never ends. Now time to go to activities. I guess that was a way of saying learning is ending, but it's really not ending, but you can play baseball now. So... So this week's Torah portion has a lot of lessons for us. And it's called Vayechi, which means, and he lived. And the Torah portion deals with the passing, the life and times, and really the passing of Yaakov of Jacob. What we're going to do tonight is analyze pretty much the first verse of the Torah portion and ask a bunch of questions and hopefully get to a place where we have a very deep understanding about what life really is and what legacy is all about, and really what immortality is all about. So it, it reminds me, Her, good to see you. It reminds me of, this is for you. Um, sure. There was a book, so as some of you may know, we have a Jewish book club that we launched last year. Do you guys know this? We have a monthly book club. We read Jewish books. Last year it was online. This year we launched it in person. And we also have an online option, but it's, we launched it in person. And we had our first um, of the new season. We had our first book this past Sunday. But it reminds me of a book that we had last year about immortality. What was the book called? Do you remember this book? Was Century it called Eternal Life? Yeah. Yes. What? Who would have thought? Dara Horn. Dara Horn. She's a great author. Yes. Yeah, she's amazing. So the book is called Eternal Life, and as the name would give away, slash suggest, it's all about eternal life. I'm not going to give away the plot, but the plot asks, but the book asks the following question. If you could live forever, yeah, yeah, right? Would that be a blessing or perhaps would that be a curse? Think about it. Think about it, right? You would think like, everyone, who doesn't want to live forever? Like everyone's trying to like add longevity and you know, anti-aging, and there's medical research, scientific research, fountain of youth type, type thing, Ponce, Ponce de Leon Avenue, 
which we call Ponce de Leon here in the South. Ponce de Leon, Fountain of Youth guy, right? Am I wrong here? Fountain of Youth. And why is this street called Ponce de Leon Avenue? You know why? Because some dude, yeah, the Springs, where the Sears building is. So at some point in the early 1900s or late 1800s, some guy said, oh, he found the Fountain of Youth. And so they called it Ponce de Leon Springs. And then he just sold a lot of money to tourists. Or he made a lot of money off of tourists. And then it's like, oh, whoops, there's no actual medical science that's proven that this does anything. So we'll just turn into the old Sears and Roebuck building. It was a baseball field before that. It was a baseball field. Baseball field was across the street. Oh, no, I across the street. Yeah, but it was close. It's right there. They're still doing that today in St. Augustine. What is that? Yeah. In St. Augustine? That's where the original Really? St. Augustine is Florida, I want to say? Yes? Yeah. What are they doing? Oh, they have springs over they there? They have like a, like a fountain of youth. Of course they do. That you could, go to that you could pay money for. Yes. <laughs> of course. Of course. It's always about the money. It's always about the money. No one ever said we found the fountain of youth and we're giving it away for free. Although the first sample they give away for free. But after that, uh-oh, watch out. That's how they get you. So anyway, my point is the book, Eternal Life, is, and Dara Horn is amazing. She's a fantastic author and a pretty cool person. So she, she is... The, the, the plot, the whole concept of the plot is if you could live forever, would it be a blessing? So, you know, we all, we all many of us want to live longer. We want to be healthy, so we live longer. And reminds me of a story of <laughs> a guy. So there's this guy, a couple that's married for, for a long time. And, you know, as they get older, the wife decides to get into healthy eating. And she says, all right, we're going to take out red meat and take out carbs and take out this and take out that. Only, huh? only green and only, whatever it is, like raw and green and vegan and, <laughs> and all the above. And pescapilian, not pescapilian. Sorry, that's something else. That's, something else. that's a different <laughs> belief. Huh? <laughs> different Wednesday night. <laughs> Pescatarian, is that what it is? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, whatever. So it means like, I think it means like no pest diet or something. There's some. It means the only. I'm kidding. All right. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. So she goes on this like whole diet kick and exercise and yoga and Pilates and this and that. Even hot yoga to mix things up. Sometimes a Chabad. Anyway, it turns out that... Um, yeah, so they live, uh, and, and, and they live, they're healthy, they live long, etc. Well, one day, they're, they're in their 90s, and tragically, they, uh, they're in a car accident, they pass away. Anyway, they go up to heaven, and they lived a good life, so the angels admit them to heaven, and it's amazing, and it's, it's, it's fantastic. You know this one? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I know it also. I'm hoping I get the right punchline. Anyway, so the husband says to the wife, I can't believe what you did. Had you not, because heaven is so great, had you not put us on this kick, we would have been here 20 years earlier. All right, that's the joke. The point is like this. The point is, um, did I get that right? So I, I feel like I may have missed a step or two, but that's ultimately the punchline. So here's the point. Eternal life is like the holy grail, to mix metaphors, of, of many people. It's the holy grail. It's like how many products are sold annually to make us look younger or, or live longer. It's all about the same thing, right? Youth and longevity and that sort of thing. Immortality seems to be like the ultimate. But if we had immortality, would it actually be a blessing? That's really not the question we're going to address tonight, although that is a fascinating question. The question we're going to address tonight is how might we, how might we experience immortality in our own lives? Can we experience immortality on a spiritual level? And what would that look like? So what we're going to do is we're going to study the opening verse of this week's Torah portion. If you have a chumash, 
Open it up, please, to, to 318. We're going to do a little Chumash reading inside our Chumash here, the good condition that we have right here in Shul. But we will recon- reconcile this also with the Torah studies text, which I will pull up on the screen for the benefit of everybody that is with us. Oh, is marked? Mine That's was. nice. That's nice. That's a mensch. Someone in Shul last Shabbos flipped the page and said, I'm going to mark this. For Linda. Yes. Uh, maybe he left out that, la- or she left out that last little piece of it, but somebody did a very menschy thing. Yes. All right. Um, I am putting this up on the board. Hold on. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Stay with me here. Share screen. Okay. We're going to start actually with text 2A in the booklets, but I'm going to read the, the opening verse. Okay, 3.18, Parshas Vayechi, and the Torah says the following. Yaakov lived, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years. And the total of Yaakov, Jacob's days, the years of his life were 147 years. So the Torah tells us how long he lived in Egypt, it was 17 years, and that the total number of years that he lived were 147. So if you do the math, how old was he when he entered Egypt? 130. 130. Excellent. 130. Excellent. I'm going to give division next time. Watch out. <laughs> now that we've advanced passive subtraction. <laughs> next thing you know. Right? If he was 147, if he lived 17 years in Egypt and he was 147, Right? If you take off those 17 years, 130. In fact, in last week's Torah portion, and this now, everyone please open up your booklets, the Torah Studies Booklets 2, text number 1 on page 165. I'm going to read this. It says in last week's Torah portion that the day, so Yaakov, Jacob, when he comes down to Egypt, so Yosef, his son Joseph, introduces him to Pharaoh, his boss. You know, it's like when your kid gets a job and, and, and your kid says, hey, meet my boss. In Yosef's case, it was Pharaoh. It's like, hey, meet my boss. He's the ruler of the land. Okay, so interesting. All right, so like this cool meeting. I always like, I, I'm always like inside my head and my, like my brain. I'm always fascinated by this meeting, this epic meeting between Yaakov and Paro, Jacob and Pharaoh. It's like, wow. And we know some of the dialogue, but certainly there was more said and more thought about and more blogged about. I mean, I just I can only imagine like what that, like, what that looked like. Anyway, so Pharaoh asks Jacob, how old are you? And this is what he answers, text one. You know what, Mike? Go ahead and read it. Come on. You got this. (laughs) The days of the years of my life have been few and miserable. All right. Jacob says, the days of the years of my life have been few and miserable. Clearly, he was not happy with his life up until that point. He was 130 years old, and he calls them few. I don't know. That seems like a decent amount of time. But he, say, he calls it few. He says ma'at, they're few, and ra'im, like ra. No, no, no. no that's ra'a. Ra with an ayin means back. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he sa- it says that the days, of, the days of the years of my life have been few and miserable, ma'at vera'im. Few and miserable, sad. Yeah. Now let's, let's analyze this for a moment. Let's try to figure out what's, what's going on here. So Jacob, Yaakov, clearly lived clearly experienced uh, a lot of difficulty in his life. 
Let's, let's go through the, the challenges that he had. We've done this before, but let's do this for the sake of this conversation. So growing up, what was his challenge? Who was he contending with growing up? His twin brother, right? Who, what was his twin brother's name? Esau. 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 Right? So he was, that was a tough brother to have. This guy's a hunter. He's a killer. He's an assaulter of women. This guy, this guy did it all. Esau. Esau did. And Jacob is like this innocent guy called, referred to in the Torah as a dweller of tents. He's a guy that's you know, just doing his thing and studying Torah and hanging out with, uh, with the right crowd, and he's dealing with his brother. Well, at some point in time, as we know, the story goes that he takes the blessings that were earmarked for his older brother, his older brother finds out about it, and now his older brother wants to kill him. Okay, so there's challenge growing up, having a brother that does not see eye to eye with you. They kind of went completely divergent ways, and that created tension in the family. And then coupled with the fact that his brother at some point not that long, I mean, at some point in, in, in their relatively younger years, his brother wants to kill him. Yeah, that seems like trauma. Well, what happens next? What happens what, next? What, what, what about also having the fact that his father, didn't he know that his father preferred Asaph? Yeah, his father did prefer Asaph. However, his mother preferred him. So I'm going to call that a wash. I'm just going to call that straight up a wash. If it's not, all right, listen, I, I, I hear, I can't argue. I, I mean, I, listen. Mom, I know you always love me more. I'm just saying, but I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We're not, or not. But anyway, the point is, the point is. Well, let's, we're, that's, this is totally not the uh, not the conversation. But here's the point. So uh, yes, his father loved his old. The Torah says his father loved loved Esav, and his mother loved him. If you call, I I was thinking that's a wash. If you don't want to think of it as a wash, no problem. You know, we can look at it different ways. But here's the point. He had a lot of trauma, a lot of challenge in his youth. And then he gets a little bit older. And his brother wants to kill him. So what does he do? He moves to Haran. And at Haran, who does he encounter? Lavan. Lavan, who turns out who's his uncle and then becomes his father-in-law. Whatever, it's complicated. Then, you know, it's one of those things. And for 20 years or so, 20, 22 years, there he is in the, in the thick of things with, with Lavan, negotiating, wheeling and dealing, being, being tricked. And a and, um, hundred times, he says, Lovin changed his salary on him and, and he changed the agreement. Very difficult, very challenging. All right, well, he's done with Lovin. And then what happens? What's the next narrative? He's finished with Lovin and what happens? He fights the angel. Good. Now all he needs is an angel on his case. Great. A whole night he's wrestling with an angel. You kidding me? It wasn't even pay-per-view. Maybe it was. Anyway, he's wrestling with an angel. And anyway. Yeah, yeah, he wrestled with an angel. It was Aesop's angel. Then he meets, and he's all, he's all scared about his meeting with, he's, he's totally scared about meeting his brother Aesop. It turns out okay. But then what happened shortly thereafter? Yeah, well, yeah, his hip got dislocated. That created a limp for a while. But then what happened? What, what happened next? He loses Joseph. Well, hold it. Before Joseph, some other, some other drama happened. His daughter. What happened with his daughter? Oh, he gets uh, the marriage. Dina. Dina's abducted. All right, there we go. Dina. Dina's abducted. Did anybody say Dina? All right, I'm kidding. Dina, right, is abducted. And assaulted, and that's his daughter, right? And then afterwards, if that wasn't enough, 
Joseph, Joseph is thought to be dead. Joseph is, um, is gone. And he's gone for, once again, 22 years. So Yaakov, Jacob, at this point is 130. And so he says to Pharaoh, we read it before. He says, the years of the, day, the days of my life were ma'at verayim, or, very f- or, or few and, and bad. And that makes sense. To me, that makes sense. Why does it make sense? Because he lived a very difficult life. Talk about a guy that had sorrows. He had sorrows from the beginning to the end. However, and here's the key, the last 17 years of his life, guess what? Drama-free. No drama zone here. Bumper sticker with drama with an X or maybe one slash through it. No drama for the last 17 years. In fact, in fact, listen to this. The, the uh, Kleoker says something beautiful. The Kleoker gives us a beautiful insight. Text to be, I'm going to share my screen with you. And we have it here, page 166 in the booklets. Take a look at this. Amy, please read. Nice and loud text to be from the Kleoker. Take it away, please. The great serenity that he experienced during the 17 years when he saw his children settled in peace, prospering in the land, proliferating and increasing, made him forget all his former troubles. It was as if they had never occurred. So listen to what the Kleoker says. He says the 17 years that Jacob was in Egypt, when everybody, look, look what he says, when he saw his children settled in peace, you know what that means? They weren't fighting with each other anymore. Okay? They were prospering. No one was being abducted. No one was being chased. No one was being hunted. No one was being, you know, attacked and, and nothing. And they were proliferating and they were increasing. They were being fruitful and multiplying in essence. So look what the Cleocra says. It made him forget all his former troubles. It was as if they had never occurred. That's a powerful statement right there. And let's analyze this for a moment. The Cleocra is not saying that these last 17 years were finally good years for Jacob. Finally, after 130 years of difficulty, challenge, and trauma, he had 17 years of, of, uh, of menuchas anefesh, of, of, of peace of mind. That's not what he says. That is absolutely not what he says. The Cleocra says something much deeper. The Cleocra says that these 17 years made him forget all his former troubles. It was as if they had never occurred. You understand what he's saying? He's saying it wiped out, it eliminated the 130 years of challenge. The 17 years wiped out the 130 years. Are you seeing that or am I? Am I am, no, you don't see that? I see that. Yeah. Well, hold on. Well, I'm going to ask the question, how does, how does that work? But, but that's, uh, let's, uh, let's first posit that that's what the Kleoker is saying. The Kleoker is saying that th- the serenity that he had in these 17 years made him forget all his former troubles as if they had never occurred. So it means that it's almost going back and erasing the trauma and erasing the history of those 130 years. That's what the Kleoker is saying. My question is going to be, how does that work? You want to tell me from now on it's good? That's one thing. You tell me you go back in time retroactively now. There's no trauma. There's no drama. There's no challenge. There's no, I, that becomes a little bit harder to understand. But before I ask the question, let's just understand the significance of this. Because according to this, this is the explanation, the Cleocra's explanation of why the Torah tells us that he lived in Egypt for 17 years and his, the days of his life were 147. Remember that verse? The opening verse, this was over. He lived 17 years in Egypt, and the total number of years were 147. So what's the Kleoker saying? 
Kirkar is saying is that the 17 years, are you with me on this? The 17 years that he lived in Egypt made all 147 good. Are you with me on what I, what I just said? The Kliyakar is deriving this from the juxtaposition of the two numbers in the verse. The verse tells us, yes? Does this make sense? The verse tells us that he lived 17 years in Egypt. And he, in total, he lived 147. Why, why tell us this? Why do the addition for us? We know last week's Torah portion, we know that he lived 130 years, and now we know he lived another 17. We can do the math on our own. We know 130 plus 17 is 147. Why does the Torah have to total it up for us to say it's 147? So the Kleocra says to tell us that the 17 years in Egypt went ahead and made all 147, just like these 17 were good, and made all 147 good, i.e. the previous 130. Yes? Made them all good, which leads me to my question. I have three questions. Question number one, how does that work? How does that work exactly? You tell me that from now on it's good, right? That's one thing. You tell me that it's so good that, um, you know, I'm not even going to bother remembering all that stuff. That's also, that's also understandable, right? It's so good, you know, let bygones be bygones. I'm not going to drudge up or whatever the expression is, the past. I'm not going to go back there. Like, it's fine. We'll leave it where it is. It's so good now. You want to tell me that? That makes sense. But you tell me on a deeper level that it's actually transforming all 147 into good? You tell me that it's going back retroactively and making those 130 years of drama actually mean something other than the trauma? How is that possible? And I know I'm reading a little bit into the Kleokar, but then I try to get, get as much buy-in as I could because the question is predicated on the deepest reading of the Kleokar possible, which is that it literally transformed the previous troubles into something positive. And the question now is, the question now is, how is that possible? How could the 17 years transform <coughs> and almost um, not repossess, that's something else. How could it reclaim Reclaim the 130 years. Eclipse. Not ecl see, eclipse sounds like it's, I'm not even thinking about that, but it's, it's transforming the prior 130 into good. How is that possible? That seems to be, you with me on the question number one? Question number one? Okay. Question number two. This is going to be a technical question, but you'll see we'll answer it in a powerful way based on the Rebbe's insight, which is the core of tonight's class. The second question is, the opening of this week's Torah portion says that Yaakov lived in Egypt for 17 years. That does not seem to be necessary to our Torah portion. I'll tell you why. Our Torah portion speaks about the, the life and really the passing of Jacob. So what's, what's relevant to our parsha is the fact that he lived 147 years and then he, he was going to pass away after 147 years. Why does it tell us that he lived in Egypt for 17 years? Because he did. Okay, sure, but that should have been at the end of last week's Torah portion. Because in last week's Torah portion, the Torah tells us that he moved to Egypt and that the family lived there and everyone was good and should have ended off by saying, and Jacob was there for 17 years. And this Torah portion should begin by saying he lived 147 years and as his time came to pass, he called his family, he gave them blessings, and, and he passed away. That, are you with me on this? Why does the Torah, this week's Torah portion, a new Torah portion, start with the fact that he lived in Egypt for 17 years? I mean, it's true that he lived in Egypt for 70. But why is it here? Why is it not at the end of last week's? It should, it should have been, that first half of the verse should have been appended, not appended, should have been part of last week's Torah portion where he moves to Egypt and it, the Torah details what life looked like in Egypt 
during those 17 years. So it should have summarized it and said, and, and, and Jacob lived there for 17 years. Yes? Question? Yeah. I mean, it's okay. technical question, but still a question. The third question I have is as follows, and this is a question that we've asked many times before in many different contexts. The name seems to be a bit of, of a misnomer. The name of the portion is Vayichi. Vayichi means, and he lived, and the Torah portion talks about his death, his passing. We have a similar question when it comes to the Torah portion of Chaye Sarah, right? The life of Sarah, and it's all about her death. Similar question, why is it called Vayichi? And Jacob lived, he lived, well, turn a few pages, right? He, we're kind of winding this down. Why is it called Vayechi? And the question, this is like classic Lubavitcher Rebbe question. Because the Rebbe has certain rules in Torah scholarship upon which are based questions. Like, like for example, one rule is the name, of a, the, the name of a Torah portion is not just a matter of convenience. Oh, it's the first word of this week's Torah portion. And it actually is. Right? He's the first word of this Torah portion. It's not a mat matter of simple convenience. They found the first word that sounded cool and put it in lights, but it rather sums up the theme of the parsha. So if this week's Torah portion is Vayichi, you know what it means? It must mean that this Torah portion is about life. Life, you say? It's kind of about death, preparations for death, his passing, his, his, uh, his eulogy, his burial. I mean, it's, the whole thing is about his passing. Why is it called Vayichi? So you with me on the three questions? Question number one, how could the 17 good years not only eclipse the 130 bad years, but how could it transform these to all good? Question number one. Question number two, why does this week's Torah portion Tell us that he lived in Egypt for 17 years. That should have been at the end of last week's Torah portion. And question number three is, why is the Torah portion that deals primarily with Jacob's passing, why is it called Vayechi, which means, and he lived, a name connoting life? To understand this, we need to understand what life is really. What is life? And there's a powerful verse that speaks that gives us a working definition of what life is on the deepest of levels. I'm gonna share my screen and we're gonna do this inside. This verse comes from Yermio Hanavi, Jeremiah the prophet, text number three. Jeremiah, hold on, Zachariah was a bullfrog. Is that a song, is that something? Jeremiah. No, Jeremiah was a bullfrog? Jeremiah was a bullfrog, not Zechariah. Jeremiah, legit, Jeremiah. So we're now reading Jeremiah, but this is not that. This is Jeremiah the prophet. All right, Sam, nice and loud so that we can all hear text number three. The Lord God is true. He's a living God. All right, so here we have two statements about God. Number one, God is true. And number two, he's a living God. So we have two descriptions about God. Number one, true, and number two, living. I want to share with you what we're going to develop tonight is a beautiful Hasidic concept about the connection, the correlation between truth and life. So if I ask you a question now, what's the connection between truth and life? Is there a connection, conceptual connection between truth and life? What do you got? Connection. Like what connects? Truth means that it's true. It's not false. And life means life. What's the connection between truth and life? Life is true. Life is life true. Is true. Okay. What else? What else? Ariella, go ahead. Jump in. 
Um, you have to be true to yourself to have a good life. So you can't be living according to someone okay. else's standard. You have to figure that good. out. Good. Good. If you're living to make someone else happier, to fit into someone else's mold, then maybe it's not a real life. It's not your life. Good. 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 Excellent. What else? What, what other connection do we have between truth and life? Any connections? Truth and life. What comes to mind? Without truth, there's truth? no life. Without truth, there's no life. Okay. Good. Good. What else? Truth is everlasting. Good. And, and life is? Life is life is short. Life is not everlasting. Unless but that's a truth. distinction. Yeah. Yeah, but if you live a, if, if you live a true life, then there's a way to live on forever. Live a true life. Okay, good. Good, good. I like that. I like that. Okay, good. So let's, let's explore... Let's explore the, a teaching, a beautiful teaching from the Rebbe on this. I'm going to read this. It's a bit of a longer text. I want to read this and throw in some commentary. This will be text number four. So please open up your booklets to 168. I'm also putting it on the screen, and I will read this right now. Okay, here's what the Rebbe writes, or what the Rebbe teaches, about the connection between truth and life. He says, absolute life can only apply to something that is always alive, something that endures eternally and is unchanging. Therefore, only God, the source of all life, is absolutely alive. As it is written, the Lord God is true. He is a living God. Truth is not subject to cessation or adaptation. If it ceases, it is not true. So I want to just summarize quickly this first paragraph. So the way the Rebbe describes it in the opening paragraph here is that when you call something true, or when you say that something is true, what it means is that it's not sub subject to change. If something is only true in one moment or true in one context, you know what it, you know what it makes it? Not true. not true, right? If my story only works the one time I tell it, but not the second time I tell it, it's probably not a true story. Right? If an experiment works only once and doesn't work again, right? it's probably not a true finding. It's not truth. Truth is that which is consistent, that which is everlasting, that which is eternal. Truth is a constant. Let's continue. That's why our sages of blessed memory said that God's signature, it says, Chotamo shel HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the seal of God, or the signature of God is emet is truth. So God's, it's almost like, you know, um, back in the day, they used to have like a signet ring to seal. I feel like we should bring that back. Yes. Right? Can we do that? Definitely. We don't even have paper anymore. Who has, okay, we have paper. We don't <laughs> even have letters. Who writes letters? But back in the day, oh man, huh? I do, and I do the seal. You have the seal? Wow. You do a wax seal? Come on, Sandrine, that's amazing. Seriously. Sandrine, Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Oh. You do a wax, you do, you, with the hot thing and you, really? Yeah. She's bringing um, it back. Now we need to get your Sandrine, ring. Sandrine, you are bringing, yes, get a ring. Yeah, you just get a ring. You just, and in case you got to seal something, boom. Imagine a notary. It's like, yeah, I got that right here. But I heard there's a machine that don't like, Oh, so listen, who remembers, I don't know if anybody remembers Nussin, Nussin's Bar Mitzvah. You remember that? It had a seal. Yes, we had a seal. We did that in the house. Oh, my. Oh, my Lanta. Oh, my Lanta. We took 
This is, this is, the, this is legit. This is, I know some, many of you got this invitation. We took hot wax and we, I don't remember exactly, I think we just dri straight up dripped it on it and then sealed it down. Sam, did you see that in action no, at the house? No, I, I received it and I was like, this is incredible. And we had to take it to a special post office that what they call it hand block or something, hand something. Hand stamped. No, no, hand what? Not stamped. Hand? Hand canceled. Canceled. Thank you. Hand canceled where they cancel the stamp. It's a whole thing. Stamps got out of control. They're being canceled now. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Guys, come on. Seriously. No, hey, cancel stamp means happen. that it'll happen. Stamps. Seriously. Really? They're done. Uh, no, so, so basically, no you stamps. You had a string in there. We had string. It was, it was incredible. But no, basically what happened was... Um, what happens is the stamp, they don't want you to reuse the stamp. So they, they put the bark, they put like they, oh, they yeah. but they, it, that's when it runs to the machine. It, oh, it basically yeah. puts ink on the stamp. But you can't run something that's a little bit bulky because it'll rip the thing and tear everything to shreds. So they have to hand cancel the stamp and then manually put it through and not run it through the machine. Anyway, it's very complicated because I went to a bunch of post offices. But why is this about me? <laughs> this I don't know. But get back, to, back to our story. God's stamp. God has a stamp also. God's still old school. Just sorry. Just saying. Just, just saying. If you see any lightning, let me know. All right. Yeah, but like, you know, God's got a stamp. He's still rocking. God and Sandrine, the only two left that have stamps. All right. Uh, and Leah. We still have those stamps. We, you ready for this? Leah hand carved out of a, like a, a stamp, um, it was like a solid stamp that you can customize. Wow. She custom carved whatever it was. I forget already. Yeah, Nustin, if you're listening, <laughs> we love you, man. And I think she carved like fill-in or something. First shot, yes. I show him. Yeah, he's lucky. If, he, he's lucky if he got a party. Anyway, kidding. I'm kidding. No, we did beautiful stuff for him. All right. Yeah. You saying by uh, by Ellie? Yeah, by Ellie. It's uh, yeah. not even paperless post. It's like. Whatever. All right, back to our story. So God's seal is truth. God's seal is truth. Emet, we're in the second paragraph, second line. Emet, the Hebrew word for truth, is comprised of three letters. Aleph, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Mem, which is the middle letter. And Tav, which is the last letter. Yeah, if you look at the Hebrew alphabet. Now, Mem, okay, if you actually look at the Hebrew alphabet, like, don't fact check me yet, because Mem is not the middle letter. But if you count the final letters... No, mem, no, tough is the last letter, but mem is not the middle. It's a little bit more toward the end. But if you add all the final letters, there's a bunch of final letters after mem, like nun, tzaddik, pei, right? That's, uh, there's a shin and a sin, whatever, tough and stuff. So if you add all those like extra novelty letters, so then mem actually becomes the middle letter. Okay, anyway, so the emet, the Hebrew word for truth, is actually... It's the first, the middle, and the end. And what that, what that indicates is consistency. You know, is that which is true in the beginning, in the middle, and all the way through to the end. It doesn't change. It's, it's consistent all the way through. Let's continue inside. This demonstrates, and this is God's seal, and that demonstrates that God is not subject to change as the verse, unlike Bitcoin, as the verse states, I am first and I am last 
and but for me there is no God. God is basically self-declaring that I am the only constant that is. This is the meaning of the verse. Let's continue through a paragraph. This is the meaning of the verse. The Lord God is true. Because his truth is absolute, truth, again, truth means consistency, not subject to cessation or adaptation, therefore, God, God forbid, therefore, so since God is true, therefore, last line on this page, he is a living God, he is, he is absolute life. So the two, the, the two statements, the two phrases from Jeremiah are linked. Because God is true, God is absolute life. Because absolute life is also absolute truth. And this is where I want to come in and jump in on this with a little bit more explanation. The truest definition of life is that which is absolutely alive. If something is only alive, sometimes, well, then how alive is it really? Even when it's around, it's not really alive because it doesn't, it's not real life if it doesn't have real sustainability. That's the big idea that we're saying over here. The, dem the illustration from this comes in text number five, which comes from the Mishnah Tractate Para. Take a look at this. As you know, um, there were certain rituals back in the day, times of the temple, rituals of purification. Even till this day, there are rituals of purification. We have a mikvah, etc. But certain rituals only existed in temple times. Um, and some of these rituals, purification rituals, required what the Torah describes as mayim, Chaim. What's Mayim Chaim? What, what are the words mean? Mayim is water. Chaim is life. How would you translate that? Living waters. So the question is, what's living waters? Like, are there dead waters and living waters? So the, the mission explains that, there, that this means water, water that's drawn from a living source. What's a living source? A living source is a source of water that is flowing. Movement indicates life. Right? When something moves, you know it's alive. Right? Okay, I saw these tree leaves moving. They might be alive, or it could be the AC or the heat. I'm not sure. I'm kidding. I didn't see the move either. But the point is like this. Movement is an indication of light, of life. I'm sorry. Movement is an indication of life. So waters that flow, if a river is flowing and moving, right, if it's alive, if it's flowing and moving, it's alive, and then it's kosher for these waters. But look at what the mission says in text number five. These are waters that lie. There are waters that are not truthful, waters that are lying waters, like untrue waters, even if they only lie once in a seven-year cycle. And what the mission is referring to are rivers or streams, bodies of water that dry up, even once every seven years. Listen to this. Even if every once in seven years that body of water dries up, the mission says these are not living waters, they're lying waters. These waters are untrue, and therefore they're unalive. Truth and life in this context are synonymous. Truth is that which is a constant, and life is that which is constant. If it's not true, then it's not truly alive either. So in short, in summation, the definition of life, the definition of life really only lies with God. Because only God is true life. Only God is absolute life. Everything else is contingent life. I mean, think about it. Think about it on, on our end. Um, all of us didn't always exist. We were made to exist. And at some point, we will not exist. I mean, on a physical level, 
right? So let's leave the soul out of this for a second. On a physical level, there was a time that we weren't, a time that we are, and a time that we won't be. So this is not eternal. This is like the rivers that dry up every once in seven years or the rivers that only exist for a span of 70, 80, 90, 100, 120 years. That's all we have, right? Physically, I mean. So th the physical body, we wouldn't say, has an element of eternal life. It doesn't have what we would call an element of truth to it because it ends, it ceases. And because it doesn't have this truth, therefore, on some level, it's not even called alive even while it is alive. Are you with me on this? Because its life is not its own. Its life is contingent on something else. And its life will cease. That means even while it's around, it's not really true. And if it's not really true, it's not absolute. If it's not absolute, then it's not absolute life. So this is, so let's continue with, what, I, I want to keep on developing it because hopefully all the pieces will snap into place. Let's take a look at text number six. This comes from the Rebbe Hashab, the sixth Chabad Rebbe, and it elaborates further on this concept. Take a, I'm going to read this again to add in some commentary. He says, the existence, this is page 169, the existence of all things is not absolute. Right, all things, meaning us, creation. Rather, they are contingent on the absolute existence of God, the source of all things, and are therefore subject to extinction and deterioration. If so, how can they be considered absolutely alive? We can verily see, which means tangibly see, that the corporeal body expires and deteriorates. I was saying this a moment ago, right? The physical body at some point dies and disintegrates. Illustrating, he says, that life and existence are not inherent to us, but are rather fed to us by our souls. Absent the soul, we expire and deteriorate as evidenced by the fact that even a fresh newborn is subject to dehydration. And that is not at all what it says in the, what it says in the original. And I'm not sure why they translate it like this. In the original, it says the Mishashin Noled, from the time a child is born, it begins to dry out slowly, slowly, the, its moisture. That's what it says. From the moment a child is born, it begins drying out. That's what it says. I guess maybe whoever translated is like, ooh, we can't write that because, like, ooh, that sounds, ugh. So, so they wrote, even a fresh newborn is subject to dehydration. That's so strange. I don't know what that means. Subject to dehydration? I mean, please make sure that the child is drinking and, and hydrated. Subject to dehydration. It means on a physical level, we begin, I mean, sh should we say it so bluntly? Sure, we begin to die the moment we're born. The clock is ticking. I mean, I'm not trying to be like um, negative here, but I'm just being, the point is that all temporal existence is temporary. All physical existence is temporary. Why? Because it's not, it doesn't have its own, doesn't have its own battery. It's not self, it's not self-propelling or self-perpetuating. Life is contingent on God's life. God is the only absolute. By the way, how do we know that God is absolute? That's li literally the definition of God. That literally the definition of God in our, in our understanding of God is absolute reality, absolute life. Say, yeah, but who made God? That's the point. God just is. So God is isness. God is that which is. Everything else wasn't until it was made to be, but it's only made to be for a certain amount of time. Limited time only. It's like... <laughs> This sneaker colorware drop, boom, get them while they last and then resell them or something. That's what all the kids are doing. You know this, right? Oh, it's a huge market. Nussin tells me, huh? Nussin's like in LA, these guys, they have side hustles. They buy these sneakers and they flip them. Yeah, it's a whole thing. Wait, resell them for more money? Oh, oh it's a huge like industry. Sneakers? Like 
Oh, it's a whole thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sneakers? Oh, they're not just shoes anymore. No, these are not, these are not just shoes. It's a, whole, it's a whole industry. All right, back to our story. So here's the point. There, there's a correlation between truth and life. Right? What's the connection? Truth, by definition, is that which is eternal. If it's not eternal, it's not true. If it was only true until a certain point, ah, that makes it not true anymore. So truth is eternal. Emmet, it's Aleph, Mem, Tuf. It's beginning, middle, end. It goes all the way through. It's consistent. So that's what truth is. And, the, and Jeremiah, Yermiyah, and Avi says, and you know what God is? God is truth and God is life because only that which is true is truly alive. Because if it's not true, it's not really alive. If it's not consistent life, then it's not really alive even while it's here. Are you with me on this? Let's cut to the chase. Let's cut to the chase. How do you know when someone's alive? You and I, how do you know when someone's alive? You're breathing. Fine. But that, can only, that might mean, hold on, I, I, I need to add one more piece to this. One more piece to this. So when are we, true? based on this, when are we truly alive? As long as we're living a biological life, we're not alive. Because what kind of life is that? It's a life that's going to end. So what kind of life is that? It's not real life. It's a temporary sliver of, it's a temporary blip in the radar. It's not life. It's, it's, it's false life. It's lying life. It's like those lying waters that even though there's water now in the stream, but if it dries up, then even while it was there, it wasn't really alive. So the, the, body's, the body's not alive. The body has life for a moment. It's borrowed life. What does it mean to live life? It means that we live life inspired by our soul, connected with Hashem, right? Because God is the only true life. So when we live a life that's plugged into the source, so then we're alive. You with me on this? If God is the only true life, God is eternal. God is life. So when we plug into God, that makes us alive. Then we are alive. When we're just, you know, living the physical existence life, living the insta life or whatever, the physical life, then it's nice while it lasts, but it's not real life. It's not real truth. It's not eternal. Therefore, it's not absolute life. So let's get back to, let's, let's, let's kind of bring it all together. So how do we know, and I'll, I'll ask the question I asked before, but I asked it before this critical piece of, uh, of, of uh, one, one last piece of intro. So I'll ask the question again. So how do we know that a person's alive? Not, when, not because they're breathing. They're breathing, you know, that the physical body temporarily is showing signs of life. But how do you know when someone's alive? When they're living what kind of life? A soulful life, an eternal life, plugged into something much greater than just the physical biological life. But how do you know that the person is truly going to remain committed to that type of life? You don't. And if it dries up, if the spiritual commitment dries up at some point, guess what? Not truly alive. So when, when do you know that a person truly lived? When? At what point in their life? When do you know they truly lived? At the end. You with me on this? When do you know that a person truly lived? At the end. That's what our Torah portion is telling us. You ready for this? Our Torah portion says, Vayechi Yaakov, Be'eretz Mitzrayim, that Jacob lived in Egypt, Shvaz Yishana, 17 years. And now it's talking about the end of those 17 years. And so the Torah is telling us that after these 17 years, guess what? He was still living. He had lived with his brother, lived, spiritually lived. He had lived as Yaakov with his brother. He had lived as Yaakov with his uncle. He had lived with Yaakov in his wrestling match with the angel. He had lived as Yaakov 
was connected with Hashem. He had lived with that connection, even through the drama of Dina's abduction and Joseph's gone missing for 22 years. And finally, this, the final stage of his life, the 17 good years in Egypt, but he remained committed. Sometimes people are committed in times that are difficult, but when things get easy, they let it go. The Rebbe said famously many times that there were people who gave their lives for Judaism, for Yiddishkeit in the former Soviet Union. When they came to America, poof. But if they, were, if they fought so hard against the communists in the former Soviet Union, how could they let it go here? Because it only, because the, 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 the obstruction brought out, huh? Yeah. The pressure brought out the oil, brought out, the, brought out the, 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 the energy that they had inside. When there was no pressure, ah, yeah, ah. So you have to be self-propelled, it's harder. So the Torah is telling us that eight, 17 years in Egypt, with no pressure, no drama, he wasn't praying for his son, he wasn't praying for his daughter, he wasn't praying for safety, he wasn't praying for security, it was all good. It's pina coladas. Yeah? And um, hold on, what's my favorite? Um, what's the strawberry daiquiris? That's what we used to have in St. Bart's at the, uh, the place we used to stay. Whatever, long story. Long story short. Yeah, so, so daiquiris. So it's, it's like he, he was living the dream, living the life. Jacob in Egypt, it was great. His son was the prime minister. You know what that means? Yosef, I need this done. What else do you need? Like he was living the life. The Torah says he lived those 17 years, years as Yaakov. He was still Jacob. At the end of the 17 years, now you know he truly lived. He didn't tap out. He didn't chill out. He didn't cool off. He didn't give it up at the end. He went through all the way to the end. And the Torah tells us that that is how we know the Vayechi Yaakov. That's how we know that he lived. How do you know when someone lived? It's when they see their commitment, when they see their spirituality all the way through to the end. Not when they start strong but fade or when they start soft but get hot in the middle and then fade. It's when you have it all the way through from beginning to end. That's when you know that somebody truly lived their life. You know that somebody lived when they see through thick and thin. Life, we've said many times, even recently, life is like a Ferris wheel. There will always be ups and downs. The question is, through the ups and the downs, the good times and the bad times, the challenges and the, and the, and the, the, the calm moments, are you still, do we still remain committed to our faith, to our commitments, to our higher power? And in this case, Yaakov did. And so the Torah tells us, and the Kliyakar comments the following. The Torah tells us that Yaakov lived he lived those 17 years, which means all the way through to the end, consistently to the end, he lived. And he lived 147 years. You know what that means? That means that all 147 years, he had difficult times. As he said last week to Pharaoh, his, his life for 130 years was hard. It was short and it was hard. It was very difficult. He lived a very difficult life. But you know what? At the end, the final analysis, he really lived. Because despite what he went through, all of the tsaris, all of the hard times, all the, very, all the, the impossible times, he never lost faith, he never tapped out, he never gave up hope, and he never said to God, I'm out of here, You're, you, you, you gave me too much that I can handle, too much that I can handle, I'm done, I'm checking out, that's it, see you later, find someone else. He never said that. 147 years he lived. That's what the Torah is telling us. What is life? Life means that you live it, you live according to your values, and you don't let go. And that's life. Life that's lived eternally. Life that's lived with truth, consistent, beginning, middle, and end. That's a true life. Furthermore, half of the portion, not half, part of the Torah portion, this week's Torah portion, deals with the aftermath after his passing. 
And that, the Rebbe says, all of this I'm sharing with you is from the Rebbe's insight on this parasha. The Rebbe says that tells us something additional. And that is, that how do you really know that someone lived? Not only when they can withstand all of their personal drama and still remain connected, but it's when, you, it's when the next generation continues your commitment as well. Then you know you really lived. How do you know that Yaakov lived? It's when his kids are walking in his footsteps. How many kids, how many sons did Yaakov have? How many, 12? How many, of the, how many kids stayed committed to his path in life? All 12. Mitasa Shlema. He had his, it says his bed was full. In other words, his family, he had nachas from all of them. Yes, they had done things to Yosef, whatever, that's another story. But they all walked in his path. We are all from the 12 tribes. How many kids did Abraham have? Primarily, originally. Two. How many walked in his path? One. How many kids did Isaac have? Two. How many walked in his path? One. In other words, with the first two generations of Jews, Abraham and Isaac, one kid yeah, one kid no. Jacob, all 12 kids remain Jewish, remain committed, remain monotheistic, committed to the path of Abraham, Isaac, and their father Jacob. And the message for us is, this is not only the greatest nachas, but the greatest testament that a person lived. How do you know when someone lived? If their kids follow in their path, then you know that they really lived. They lived so strongly, so eternally, so immort immortal. There's another way to say that. They lived so immortally. I don't know. Something like that. They lived at such a level of immortality that even their kids are still living with those commitments, still living in that way. That's the message of this Torah portion. As the Talmud says, maybe it's here. Let me see if we have it here. Um, text 9. Show it to you quickly. I'm going to pull up the screen as well. Text number nine. This is coming from the Talmud, Tractate Tainet. It says, Mazaro Bachaim, Afu Bachaim, as his children are alive, so is he alive. Jacob, the Talmud says, uh, let me start from the beginning. The Talmud makes a statement, a very bold statement, what we would call today a hot take. At least a few years ago, that's what it was called. I'm not sure if it's still called that. Anyway, the hot take was, <laughs> the hot take was, Yaakov Avinu Lo Met. Jacob, our forefather, did not die. Talmud says, breaking news, Jacob never died. And the Talmud says, what do you mean he never died? The Torah says he passed away. The Torah says he was embalmed and eulogized and buried. Like, what, what, what do you mean he didn't pass away? And this is the Talmud's answer. No, 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 no. Mazaro b'chaim, afu b'chaim. As his children live, so too he lives. And that's the same message of tonight's class. The message is that what is life? Life is that which is eternal. Life is that which is consistent. If his life ends with him, even if it, tra even if it um, traverses all of the ups and downs of his life from beginning to end, but if it ends at his biological end, it still means he didn't live. You with me on this? If his life, if his legacy ends with him, then how alive is that really? Yaakov's life, Jacob's life, never ended because you know what we're doing tonight? We're studying Torah. We're still here. We're still studying Torah and being inspired by Jacob's message. And that means that as we are alive today, as literally we are alive today, Jacob is alive. We're carrying his message. We're learning from his story. We're still inspired by his life. And this is how we grant Jacob immortality. And so my friends, in summation, the Torah is telling us this week's Torah portion is called Vayechi, which means, and he lived. 
And we asked before, I asked at the beginning of the class, you've got to be kidding me. And he lived the whole portions about his death, his passing, preparations for death. No, it's all about his life. Because how do you know when someone lived? Number one, when from beginning to end, they were true to their commitments. And number two, when even after their passing, their family, their children, if not biological children, those that were influenced by them, still carry their legacy and carry their memory and carry their message forward. That's when you know that life is eternal. I started the class by talking about immortal life and I asked the question, is immortal life good or not good? Dara Horn might posit that it's not the blessing we might think it is because you have to deal with so much stuff for so long. Imagine doing your taxes for so many years. Gewald. Imagine, <laughs> imagine how you have a cover story while you're around so long when everyone else is not around. It's like, hey, look at me. You've got to go in hiding for a little while and reinvent yourself with the false. It becomes, as Dara Horn would tell it in the story, it becomes quite burdensome to live forever. But the model of eternal life and immortality that the Torah presents, not Dara Horn's model, the Torah's model is a little bit different. It's not a change to the physical, biological span of life that we might live, but it's a change in how we, in what we invest, what we infuse those years, those days with. It means living those days, living those years true to who we are. We live true to our values. We remain consistent with our faith even when things are difficult and even when things are very easy. It means being committed through thick and thin, from beginning to end, and that's true life. It means we didn't tap out, we didn't give up, we remain consistent. And further, when we impact another to the point that even after we're no longer physically here, that they still continue to be inspired by our message, then we know that we've lived an eternal life. So in the final analysis, what Jacob teaches us is not how to die. This week's Torah portion is not how to die. This week's Torah portion teaches us how to live all the way through, from beginning to end, and even past our end, into the next generation. Make sense? All right. So I guess the takeaway is, let's live. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. All right. It's great to see you all. Thank you for joining me for Torah Studies once again. It's great to have our solid in-person crew. It's great to have our solid online crew. Um, I'm going to unmute and actually, you guys can unmute if you have any questions or comments. And of course, you here in person, I can't mute or unmute. You guys are always unmuted and ready to roll <laughs> with questions or comments. Okay, so jump in. Jump in with questions or comments. Another benefit, yes, another benefit to coming. Yes, another benefit, Sandrina's saying, another benefit to coming in person is you can't be unmuted. All right, I feel like we should say hi to everybody. Yes, you guys say hi. All right, here we go. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this. Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry about that. I, you know what I realized? What? It's your birthday? Happy birthday to Mike. Happy birthday to Mike. Happy birthday, dear Mike. It's your birthday, right? Yesterday. Yesterday. Day to Mike. You. you it's, it's your birthday. It was your birthday. We are very excited. Amazing. Ah, speaking of life. 
120. Till 120. The Rebbe used to say sometimes till 180. Wow. Why 180? Because it's longer than 120. <laughs> and because there are sources that say. There's sources. Ten times high. Ten times high. Yeah. Oh, right, right, right. Is there a significance to the 17 years? Yes. I'm glad you asked. 17 is the gematria, the numerology of the word tov, which means good, which also happens to be the number of my Little League jersey when I used to play baseball back in the day. It was 17. Well, 18 was taken by someone else. So I'm like, all right, let me go 17. We'll get uh, tov. Yeah, tov is tes, vav, vet. So tes is nine. It's the ninth letter of the alphabet. The vav is the sixth. So nine plus six is 15. And the bet is, alf bet is two. 17. So 17 is good. So it was associated with, it was the, the best years of his life. Like physically, it was the best years of his life. But the, po- the Rebbe's point is that even though physically it might have been good and you might have thought he would take the foot off the accelerator, just relax, he kept on going. He kept on going. It's so easy to take the foot. You know what they say, there are no atheists in a foxhole. It's sometimes easier to be a believer. It's easier to be, to be committed sometimes when times are tough. But when times are easy... It's like the, fa- the joke with the parking spot. You know the joke with the parking spot? I've said it so many times. You guys have heard me say it a thousand times. Yeah, you guys know this one. The guy's, the guy's late for... Oh, hold on. We're hearing a conversation. The guy is um, the guy's late for a meeting. And he needs to find a spot. And there's like a parking lot, but it's full. It's like the Midtown Trader Joe's. Oof. You know that one, right? Oh, my God. Midtown. Which one? Pond City Market also? Pond City Market's always a mess, yeah. Always impossible. It's like Chabad in town. No, I'm kidding. We, we're fine. <laughs> no, we're okay. You just might get towed. I mean, you might get a boot, but other than that, it's all good. No, so, um, so this guy is like, he's, he's looking for a spot, and he's, he just can't find a spot. And he's, he doesn't want to be late to this meeting. So he, like, he starts like say, God, please, you know, hook me up with a spot. Nothing. He starts making deals. You ever make a deal with God? Yeah. No one's going to admit it, but we've all done it, right? Well, Linda, you admitted it. <laughs> so I guess it's only Linda. No, I'm kidding. We've all done it, right? We've all done it. Made a deal. It's like, okay, God, you know what? If you give me a spot, I'll totally go to Shul on Shabbos. Like, I'll totally go to Shul. Like, just give me a spot. No spot. All right. Uh, in the next two weeks, no spot. All right. Four weeks in a row, finally a spot opens up. And the guy's like, oh, God, deal's off. I found a spot. You know, like, because like when you're desperate, it's a joke, but we all, we do this all the time. Right? We make deals when times are tough. And then when times are no longer tough. All right, deal's off. It's all good. <laughs> like, I don't need you anymore. We're good. It's the way it works. Rob, we forget. Rob, yes. What was, what was the uh, source that you quoted before um, the Talmud says, well, those are fake waters? What was the first source you quoted about water? No, I just explained the Mishnah. The Mishnah, we only have a small little piece of the Mishnah. That's part of the same Mishnah. The Mishnah says that a body of water that dries up once, even once in seven years, is not considered to be Mayim Chaim. It's not considered to be alive. Why? Because it's, it's, it's false waters. It's lying waters. It's waters that straight up are not true because they're what not the consistent. What's the first part about Mayim Chaim? Mayim Chaim. Mayim, yeah, where does it say Mayim Chaim? It's in the Torah. Mayim Chaim al Kelly. It says regarding the Paraduma, the red heifer. You take the red heifer and you slaughter it, and you, t- you burn it, and you take the, re- the ashes, and you mix it with Mayim Chaim. It's the first triple play in, first triple play in history. Mayim, Techaim, Techeli. Kidding. Mayim Chaim Akeli means you put the, the pure, the living waters into a keli, into a cup, 
and you, you put the ashes inside and then you sprinkle it on the one who is, we don't do this today, right? Obviously, we don't have the red heifer, we don't have a temple, but that's the source of, of the, the need, the necessity of living waters. The Mishnah and Talmud then dis, dis, discuss and describe where, where, what is living waters and where you get them from. It's basically the Chattahoochee. Kidding. Maybe. One of, prophets, one of the prophets, I, don't, I forget which one, says, Makor Mayim Chaim et Adoshem. Okay, that's another verse. Yeah, I don't remember where that's from, but it sounds familiar. But this is referring to specifically a, a biblical uh, requirement to get water from the Mayim Chaim, from the living waters. And the mission is literally asking the question, well, what is living water? Like, where do we find that? Is that smart water? Is that like, are we talking about Perrier? Like, what are we talking about? Evian? I'm asking. What? Are these living waters? Uh, Perrier and Evian. Yeah. Perrier, Evian? <laughs> Not Perrier? Oh. Evian. Yeah. Which one? Like, I think that um, uh, Perry, wait, which one comes from a spring? I don't know. That's what we're, that's what we're asking. I'm not sure. Evian? Evian? Okay. What about Poland Spring? There's no spring in Poland. That's not even a thing. Pol- Remember Poland Spring Water? That's not real. That's not real. No, Florida is Zephyr, Zephyr, Zephyr Hills. My kids go to camp in Florida. It's all the same. It's all the same stuff. I don't think any springs work. Poland is Maine. I don't think any springs were harmed in the making of that water, right? I don't think any smart people were harmed in making smart water either, right? Whatever. Yes. I have a question. So now that the bodies of water are actually drying up from from global warming, are we in trouble? Well, I mean, in general, yes. (laughs) I'm going to say general. I'm going to say general, yes. But, um, but the question is, what's drying up? Where's drying up? I don't know. I don't know enough. I, I, I can't comment on the science of it. What I can say is, when Mashiach comes and we have a red heifer, my thought is, we'll find some living waters, and waters will flow once again on every different level. It's going to be, it's going to be a party. Okay. And then I have one more question. Yes. Um, I'm Yisrael Chai. So Yisrael is Yaakov. Yes. And so that's the it ties in. Yeah. 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 Just like just like Am Yisrael Chai, the people of Israel live right. Am Yisrael, people of Israel live. So that makes Yisrael Yaakov himself live. That's the Talmud is a, the, the uh, this quote the text nine that we read before is so beautiful. Mazaro b'chaim avu b'chaim as he is alive. As, as his children are alive, he is alive. The Rebbe, said, the Rebbe said this phrase from the Talmud so many times, referring to his father-in-law, the previous Rebbe. He says that when we are alive, when we carry forth the Chabad message, when we carry forth the mission and Yiddishkeit and whatever it is, Mazar b'chaim avhu b'chaim. The Rebbe would say this very often on the, uh, the 10th day of Shvat, which is the anniversary of the previous Rebbe's passing. So, anyway, all right. Good. All right. Online. Cr- yes, Richard. Yes. Yeah, tonight's class reminded me of what I think is a parakavos. Uh, don't judge a man until the day of his death. Yes. Oh, very good. Very good. So Richard points out great connection. And yes, in tonight's class, it would make a lot of sense. Don't judge or uh, sorry. It says don't trust in yourself. That's what it says. Don't trust in yourself until the day that you die, which means that until, yeah, until the end, you haven't made it. It's like, you ever see those marathons where they're celebrating the victory yeah. and then they fall and then they lose? 
<laughs> and we laugh at them, and it's heartbreaking for them, but we laugh. No, no. I only say that because there's little chuckles happening. No, but like, or like the bicyclist that thought the end of the race was there, and it was actually there. You know, like, you've, every few years, something like that happens. A bit of a mishap. It's like the swimmer thought they were at the end, and they're like, yay, and they're like, oh, wait, I'm still middle of the pool. I don't know if that ever happened. <laughs> oh, whatever. <laughs> it's like, Michael Phelps. No, okay, he's, he, was, he, he was solid. He was a finisher. But anyway, the point is, the point is, yes, don't trust in yourself until the day that you die means that you never know. No one knows, let alone oneself. We, ne right, we never know like, what's going to be that we truly lived until, until the end. It reminds me of the story that they tell. It's probably never, it probably never happened, but it's a story they say of an old Jewish bubby who was on her deathbed, and she lived such a Jewish life. And, and, and as you know, she is slowly, slowly fading, she asked one of her grandchildren, please pull out the box from under my bed. So they pull out the box, and they, she says, bring it to me, and they give it to her. I said, please open it. And they open it. It's a big cross. <laughs> like, oh, my gosh, the Jewish puppy with the cross. And she says, look, I'm just hedging my bets just in case. I'm kidding. I mean, no, that's the story that's told, but it's like... It brings out the idea that, you know, you got to see it all the way through to the end. If you got 99% of the way there, you know, you, it's, not, it's not all the way there. you gotta, you got to take it all the way through. There was a story. There's a story about one of the high priests who, Yochanan, I think it was Yochanan, I don't know, one of, the, one of the high priests who for 80 years was a high priest, something like that, like for, for decades was a high priest, it's a very long 80 years, I realize now, but I think that's what I recall, we could, we could look this up, and then eventually, ultimately, at the end of his life, he became an apostate, he, he left. Yeah, so like, here's a guy who went to the Holy of Holies, da, 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 and then, I'm not, the point of this is not to bring doomsday, like these doomsday stories, although I totally am doing that right now as we speak, but that's not my objective. The point is to say, that it's truth is all the way through. If it went almost all the way, it's still not true. It's still not true life. Richard, last word from you, and then we're going to close that online. Quick thing, Rabbi Akiva said, uh, he said the Shema before he died. Yeah. He waited all his life to, to be able to say the Shema. Yeah, so good. Good, good. All the, also all the way through. All right, online crew, we'll see you um, next time. Just a quick announcement so that everybody can hear the announcement, and that is that on December 25th, we are having an in-person only Chinese, I mean, I don't know how you can eat our Chinese dinner through virtually, but in-person Chinese dinner, Saturday, December 25th, Chinese food and a movie. It's at this point a holiday tradition. Saturday night, December 25th, starting at 7.30 p.m., all you can eat. We have meat, uh, chicken, vegetarian options available. We have a wide variety of food. We have the Frisco Kid as the film, and we have classic Jewish film, and we have, have you seen the Frisco Kid? I haven't actually, so I'm very excited about it, and I've heard a lot about it, and I've quoted it, and we have surprise, a surprise guest and surprise entertainment. Join me Saturday night, December 25th. Get your reservations while the reservations are good. All right, Lila Tov, everybody. Take, oh yeah, one second. Shh. David, David, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, on the 23rd, we are leaving to Israel finally. Wow. A lot of tourists on the way. Oh my gosh, amazing. We, it's, that's it, the end. Wow, you're moving to the Holy Land on the 23rd in a week. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. Are you here with us next week, next, next uh, Wednesday night? So in a week, I think Wednesday... 
this is what I wanted to say. I don't remember. 23rd. That would be Thursday. So you're still here Wednesday. Okay, so if you can if you can join, we'll have a virtual goodbye party and say Tchem L'Shalom. Okay? Okay. Amazing. Lots of love. Lots of love. Okay, we'll see you soon. Take care, everybody. Laila Tov. Laila Tov. Okay. All right.